special report. Knowing how to invest your money is harder than ever before. Dealing with stock market volatility, record debt, and terrorist attacks requires new thinking. At U.S. Asset Management, we can help you see the world more clearly so that you can move beyond the chaos and invest with confidence. Call us, visit us online, or drop by our office. U.S. Asset Management, helping you make better decisions with your money. Welcome to this Sunday, the 11th of February, 2024. And again, whenever I blink a moment, a lot of things seem to be happening. And obviously at CD Media, usually we try to talk about the things that we blinked and didn't see happening that remain in, in, in our blind spots. But today we will, have, we, will have, we will deviate from that rule slightly. We will talk about the one thing that everybody seems to be talking about because we cannot, the, the Tucker-Putin interview, and put in a very European spin on it, and have our assessment on, on all the reactions, because there's so much meat in here, and then actually look into Germany and things that are not being talked about after the government shifted the narrative away about like, hey, why are the farmers protesting? Hey, why is everybody supporting the farmers to, oh my God, there is, and we still have that sign taught an insurrection afoot, and let's let's start a bunch of um, yay! There, there we have it. Um, have, let's let's start a bunch of government um, supported, government organized demonstrations against the oppositions. Because you know where do we usually see that? That being said, um, well, welcome. Great to see you, Todd. Great to see you, Fabian. And. Um, I'm going to do a very daring part, and I'm going to try to summarize this two-hour interview that had plenty of WTF moments, <laughs> um, the Tucker-Putin interview. I'm, as I said, I might, might go up in flames. I'll try to, to, to summarize it in a nutshell in maybe 30 seconds, and then we all jump in. Probably, Todd, you're, of all of us, you're most versed in Russian history, and then we can give a European take on it. So... Um, I thought it was a very interesting interview and the kind of interview that one wishes a Russian journalist might have with Joe Biden. And yes, up front, I did think Tucker was overmatched by Putin. I mean, this is clearly a guy that has been at it for a while, that has been learned all kind of tactics of uh, putting people on the back foot, putting, putting people over and you know the his long history of the kgb that was clearly a very alert person one can only wonder what would have happened to joe biden in a two-hour in interview so so so, so there, there's there's that part and at the same time i did think tucker in ineffectually but nonetheless asked actual questions so i mean we're normally if joe biden is on a talking train and he's for once coherent 
nobody asks actually what does that actually mean and when Putin just talked about, well, you know, one of our goals is denazification. And then Tucker kind of stopped, well, what does that even mean? I mean, that's, you know, that, that kind of question I would ask many journalists to ask. Mm -hmm. Or point blank questions such as, which territories do you plan to keep? So, I mean, it's, it's not like it, was this, it wasn't a softball interview as it was portrayed. It was just the, the other side was just incredibly adept at sidestepping questions. Mm -hmm. um, even though... I, <laughs> It is really interesting. So there, there was a certain bit of almost autism in, uh, there about the history where, you know, kind of like, like a typical Western show host, <laughs> Tucker Carlson is asking, so quick nutshell, what's the history? How did you get into this? And, and, and then you, you have like, well, in 1050, Yaroslav the Wise, and, and sort of like Tucker, to, to, uh, like slightly flabbergasted, but they tried. Yeah, to his, his quote was, "You mean in 1654? Really? You're yeah. talking about 1654?" And and at one point, Tucker asked, "Like, which timeline are we at now?" And then they had yeah. progress from like ten something to sixteen. Yeah. So that was interesting. And again, I mean, there's lots of good stuff, lots of bad stuff layered in it. So the good part is, I don't see any of our heads of state least of all our foreign minister, um, being able to pontificate with knowledge and authority about history going back to the 10-somethings. I mean, I, I described to a friend this week, most 90% of the history that I learned in school in Germany concerned the, the national socialist history. And then there was a bit of classical antiquity, but nothing in between. So most people like Otto the Great or Karl the Great or Bismarck, they were pretty much woefully absent from our history. So, so that mm -hmm. was interesting to see. The problem for Tucker was, how do you push back against that? So probably, and it's one of these Monday morning armchair quarterbacking moments. Um, and yes, we do have the Super Bowl Sunday today, and hopefully Todd will be able to watch it. But so the armchair quarterbacking is like, if you interview like somebody like Putin, have somebody like John Mearsheimer there and actually being able to push back on, on the historical bit. Um, but that was interesting. So that was the interview. There were tons of other interesting interviews and hope, like no doubt self-servingly from Putin. Um, but sort of they, they kind of show the whole historical debate, sort of like the, the, the various interpretations of like, well, Ukraine or Kiev was the true nucleus of the Russian nation. That's what it's involved in. And then there was the, uh, then obviously one could make the Ukrainian supremacist argument. No, actually the Ukrainians were the, the first real thing and it's just the Russians and the, the Moscow um, principality that deviated from that. Then obviously, interesting enough, too bad we don't have Lucas here. There was an Austro-Hungarian element where Putin said, well, look, this whole Ukrainian thing is really just made up by foreigners. First, the Austro-Hungarians who um, tried to influence the Ruthenian people under their rule in case there was ever a war with Russia. Well, you're not really Russians, you're, you're really ours. Then obviously the Poles did the same and arguably the West has been doing this the same for the last couple of years. That, so all these narratives were there and Tucker wasn't clearly the right person to push back against that. That being said, the, so quite a number of uh, the usual fact checker. So in, in the United Kingdom, obviously the BBC for, for the 8 billion that they are worth and the podcaster and historian Tom Holland kind of fact checked. And I think the BBC as the 
neutral organization that it brandishes themselves talked about fact-checking Putin's nonsense history. And, and that, that wasn't very nuanced. So the fact-checkers, when I heard another very, very good historical podcast that goes by the name of Smith's Apostolic Majesty, uh, also a Brit, um, said, look, they got as much stuff wrong as they got right. And there's a lot more nuance here. Um, and yeah, so, so far I've been rambling my thoughts about it and things that actually happened. Probably over to you, Todd. How do you view much of the criticism of that interview from a historical point of view, from Tucker's performance, the interview well, in general? Well, um, it's interesting to me as you're talking because obviously the BBC and other outlets in Europe still have immense sway over the population and the popular opinion. It's not that way in the U.S. Um, yes, CNN and Washington Post and all of them, you know, tried to uh, downplay any significance in the interview. But in the U.S., except for 25 percent of the country, they're essentially irrelevant. Nobody listens to them anymore. So we've gone. So I didn't have that blowback reaction that you're feeling in Europe. That's one thing I, I want to say, and that uh, I think actually most Americans, free-thinking Americans, appreciated being able to hear the other side, no matter what he said. Just the fact that you could hear the other side was important. And I think anyone who is a free-thinking person who's not under the control of somebody else would say that was a good thing uh, for peace for the world. So that's point number one. The point number two is. Um, you know, I said back in 2008, and I wrote a lot about it at the time when I was writing for the Washington Times later, I think that Putin started arming around the Georgia-Russo war in 2008 timeframe because I think he looked in the mirror and saw something, saw himself, right? I, I think that the West he saw was turning uh, to a very dark place. And it's more like a gang warfare than communism versus democracy. And I think he saw the globalist rise, and that's when he start, which is you know a tyrannical oligarchy, which is what he runs, right? So he could recognize himself <laughs> in the across the street. It's like gangs of New York, and so he started arming very heavily in 2008. Obviously, they have a very good intelligence operation. I think they saw this coming. So when you hear you know in the U.S., oh well, you know we had a comment. We we just posted the interview on CDM. Just posted the interview. That was it, and. We got all, how can you, you know, you know, uh, normalize his behavior, blah, blah, blah. He puts journalists in jail. You know, he sees power. And I'm like, what? Are you watching the news? What's going on in Washington, D.C.? We have a couple thousand people rotting in jail, being tortured, solitary confinement, no food, um, cold, no medical care, dying of cancer, suicides. You know, the pictures that have come out, beaten, bloody. But these, this is in America. This is going on in Washington D.C. So don't tell me. And I, again, I'm not normalizing Putin. I can, I'll talk about him in a second. But the fact that you're talking about seizing power in the U.S. What do you think happened four years ago? And, and what do you think is happening now? We're going through a coup, a Marxist coup, globalist oligarchic Marxist coup that is happening here. So we we have lost all our moral authority. I, I talked about that. So we see two different sides of the same coin with Putin. And in that respect, we do need to understand Russian history. We do need to understand where they're coming from. You don't have to agree with them, but you need to understand their viewpoint and why pushing NATO to their borders was going to cause a war, which I think they knew and they wanted. So that's my reaction. I think it was good. 
Um, yes, I think he was a very slick operator and knew exactly what he was doing and um, drove the narrative and was fascinating to watch. Uh, but yeah, Putin has hurt the middle class. He's he's running a kleptocracy. The, the, he has oligarchs there that steal businesses when they want them. I mean, look at Yandex and, you know, what the guy that was Smith, I think it was his last name, the, the guy who started uh, Vostok um, Holdings or whatever, the hedge fund that started Yandex and uh, uh, all of the, you know, Russian clones of Western technology companies. Um, and they just put him in jail and took it. So that happens all day long in Russia. Journalists get shot all day long in Russia. Navalny, even though he works for Brennan, probably, um, is in jail. All of the opposite, you know, what's his name? Nimsov was shot right outside the Kremlin. So this stuff, it happens there. It, it's, it's a police state control surveillance state, not as bad as China, but, um, but you need to listen to their viewpoint and understand it. And I don't think the Russian people are our enemies in the long run. Neither do I think the Chinese are. It's the governments that are in control um, that are the problem. And um, we have the similar thing going on here. So that's my comments. One one thing that I um, wanted to point out was um, that uh, um, I thought the body language was fascinating mm -hmm. uh, because um, a friend of mine pointed this out. You look at the body language. I mean, Putin is sitting there, alpha, <laughs> spread legs, thuggish. And he's, Tucker, I mean, he's man, he's man spreading big time. He is man spreading <laughs> big time. <laughs> <laughs> and Tucker, well, he, I mean, his his heels were clicking, right? Yeah. And 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 so, um, and of course, I mean, Todd, you know Tucker. You've you've been interviewed by him, and, and Tucker does the Tucker stare to anybody, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But he he did the he did the Tucker stare here again, um, and uh, the so 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 from a body language perspective, I once heard that you know uh, Tucker wanted to go into the CIA. He he had this this dream of being in the CIA, pursue a career. Um, I after this interview, I know why that didn't work out. So here we have a KGB <laughs> uh, expert, right? And I mean, this, I mean, this is this is absolutely the guy is a KGB. Um, what was he, Lieutenant Colonel in the KGB? He I knows so. what the hell he's doing. Right? Yeah. So you could just you could watch this. This was this was a mouse and a cobra. Um, <laughs> however. I don't think Tucker's point was to to be the big bad man here. He just, as you said, he he wanted to to give him that um, to give him at least to just to hear what the other side is saying. And I think what I what I really am fascinated with Tucker is that Tucker just doesn't care about what the what the narrative is in the media on a global scale. I mean, he interviewed uh, Javier Millet uh, recently. I mean, he's He's been he's been um, talking to interesting people around the world. He's um, I know that in Germany, for example, Tucker is networking with uh, Julian Reichelt, who's basically start trying to start somewhat of a oh I don't know Lucas what would you say it's that some sort of an offspring of 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 a of a cheap version of Bill O'Reilly. Um, you're, my... you're on mute, Lucas. Oh, sorry, sorry. Well, I think it's either Bill O'Reilly style or it could be more of a, well, I, I think it is something like cable news, but it does feel like it's a, like a softer Alex Jones. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay. Anyways, 
Bill, Bill O'Reilly's just uh, too far in the um, conservative mainstream or the American conservative mainstream for Julian Reichel to ever be. I think Julian okay. Reichel kind of shot himself um, into the off um, some years okay. ago, and now he's slowly getting back into this. And but he, he they've called him sort of the Tucker Carlson of Germany. And I think that he's yeah. been trying. And, and I know that, that, for example, that they're that they're networking. And um, I think Tucker, he has a role model. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And so, again, with with Tucker, it's just it's in, it's interesting to see the sort of the, the, the parallel, um, the parallel push that he's making. And I haven't seen any of the numbers, but I know that the views have been up in the millions. So the interest is incredibly high. For this interview, um, that that just comes to show that you know people are are sick and tired of hearing the constant um, daily um, reminders that the media gives you of what's going on, what's happening in the Ukraine. There was this funny thing that Paul Joseph Watson did, where this lady from CNN like interviewed Zelensky, and then she later said, "How dare Tucker interview some Eastern European leader?" Blah blah blah. Anyways. Um, last point, uh, with the, the historical part, and, and I, I have to be honest with you guys, I haven't heard the whole interview. I mean, it's two hours long and I actually listened to it on double speed. So, um, I only got to the part where he was now up, uh, dissing Lenin, which is by the way, really interesting that Putin has completely decided, all right, um, I'm gonna, um, with my whole, um, mix of czarism, communism, fascism, thugism, all oligarchism, whatever that, that combo is, national Bolshevism, you don't know. But uh, it seems like the Lenin, Lenin's gone. All right. So Lenin's out. Um, yeah. Lenin has to has to be butchered for the whole Ukrainian narrative. Um, but I am fascinated with the fact that he was really uh, talking like a like a very biased history teacher who was going to teach somebody a lesson in history. And I think that, for example, I mean, um, Christian, you mentioned this earlier with Germany and, and German history. I mean, Merkel. Merkel's understanding of German history was basically down to three dates, like 1945, 1989, and, um, okay, so we have uh, the end of World War <laughs> <laughs> um, Well, may maybe 1918, perhaps. Oh, 1938. Um, so, so all of those, all of those dates in the 21st century, um, that uh, 20th century, uh, sorry, that that influenced the modern Germany. But if you were to ever go back into the 19th century, and I've heard this from a historian, she stopped listening. She just didn't care. Um, if you actually, I, I mean, I almost will go as far as to argue that if you talk about any anything from the Middle Ages, she'll listen to it. She'll have an understanding of what the topic is about. But that's about it. The last chancellor in Germany to actually talk about anything from the Middle Ages was actually Helmut Kohl, uh, who uh, Joe Biden. I mean, Kohl died in 2000. Uh, uh, Kohl died in 2017. And Joe Biden talked to him in 2021, actually, along with Francois Mitterrand, who died in 1995 at the G7 summit. So, I mean, Biden, he 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 is he is on. I mean, that's that's usually what only saints get to do, to talk to the dead. But um, anyways, Helmut Kohl, when he was governing Germany, he would always take world leaders to Speyer, where the uh, great um, um, cathedral is, which dates back to the German Middle Ages and the uh, German emperors of that day. And I remember that he took Margaret Thatcher there once, and she was so upset after she walked out and she said, this man is so 
German. And so she she never liked that. But so the last German leader to actually govern with a historical sense in that regard was Helmut Kohl. And Putin would always talk in high regards of, of Kohl because Kohl did have an understanding of how to deal with Russia. And that's the point that's missing. That's the point that's missing among Western leaders that we know that there's many areas where we just cannot trust them and they have their own interests and they are former KGB spies as with Putin or they, I think Eduard Shevardnadze of um, of uh, Georgia was also former KGB. I mean, you have a lot and, and even Central Asian leaders, former KGB. You just know how the power structures work in these places. However, talking to the other side is another aspect. And I think that is um, that is very much missing in today's world. And the question that could be asked strategically is, is Tucker setting up something that we shall see in 2025? In other words, Tucker is setting up the possible um, negotiations that a future Trump administration could go into? Question mark in the room, gentlemen? Oh, that's an interesting concept. I, I think that's quite quite possible. Um, obviously, Tucker has Trump's ear, so you know I don't know how much to believe of you know trust the plan, but um, I do believe that uh, yeah, you know that Tucker is has the ear and is listening to a lot of important people at this point. So. The, the interesting—I totally agree with you, Todd. The interesting thing, in my opinion, is just how did um, Tucker Carlson remain this um, preferred journalist of Donald Trump? While I don't know whether it's true or not, but um, we've read these um, articles about uh, Tucker Carlson somehow not believing that Trump did win the 2020 election. So I was always a bit flabbergasted by the fact that um, Trump holds uh, Carlson such high regard still. And if he does hold him in such high regard, I do think that there's some reason why it was exactly Tucker Carlson to actually be the first guy to talk to President Putin. Well, it's not the same Tucker Carlson. It's a reptilian. You know that, right? <laughs> of course, of course. The hair. I mean, have, you seen his, have you seen his pupils? You know? <laughs> oh, well, yeah, it's... Um, <clears throat> No, no, but seriously, I think it's very, very much possible that the that this was just the how do you say, uh, preliminary talk for like uh, President uh, Trump and President Putin talk. However, I would think why wouldn't they take any other proxy? Some some politician like you know the the Austrian Chancellor was I think one of the last guys who actually went to see Putin. Um, I think the Swiss went there or something. So there'll be so many people who would actually come to mind first. Like take Erdogan, for example. Um, he tries to maintain some kind of good relationship with uh, Putin. And he needs good relationships with the U.S. as well, with the uh, massive U.S. presence in Turkey, um, with also the, the U.S. presence in the whole region. You know what I mean? So I, I think that it must be a reason why it's exactly Tucker. I think... But, uh, I mean, yeah, the probably, I mean, one of the reasons why Tucker, I mean, the, the Russians, and as we talked about that, one of the things that still works more or less competently in that country is the security services. And they had a keen eye on who does all the interviews of the untouchables, uh, as it were, 
and uh, probably only Tucker comes to mind. And, and maybe and indeed there, there's this, it's not even 3D chess, but you know, a 4D chess, but you know, um, it's not an unreasonable assumption that if indeed the Trump administration were to come into power, um, you know, the Trump administration will be on, on, on good footing with Tucker and, and um, it, I mean, I think I think that that's that's how Tucker from from either side um, was selected to to do this interview, and he'd be the only person willing. I just don't see anybody else doing that. There's one interesting thing, what what I said before. I mean, obviously he was no match for Putin, um, and even though he did push certain questions that Putin then elegantly sidestepped, but I'm, I'm gonna also. Some credit to Tucker. I mean, I do like his interview style. So we remember for a while, the BBC, everybody tried to be Jeremy Paxman and Tim Sebastian and these guys who would like get into people's face. And why are you saying this? And isn't it? And then that, that horrible woman who interviewed Jordan Peterson, Casey Newman, and sort of like, so what you're saying is, and that's not Tucker's style. I mean, Tucker sort of lives on you know this jovial sort of old boys kind of charisma and and typically teases things out of people that way and that works with 99 percent of all true. people it that's doesn't true. work with a hardened kgb guy <laughs> so no, that, that 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 would be my the, the observation carlson um on the internet and especially like on instagram and meme pages anything anyway something really interesting like seeing how Tucker has this image of being like, like I don't, I don't want to say a, a boy scout, but like, like this preppy guy who, who you can, who can meet at, at a golf course, um, you know, with these uh, little tobacco thingies and stuff. So he's like, he seems to be like, um, like a young conservative version of Jimmy Buffett at one point. Yeah, he's got that thing going on for yeah. sure, for sure. And, and I mean, and again, I mean, credit to his style. I mean, not everybody. I mean, that really started going my nerves with the BBC or British journalists. Everybody tried to be Jeremy Paxman, where the, the one thing you got good stuff out of people is almost going nose to nose with, with them and asking them point blank questions. I mean, he, he has a style. It's just, you know, he, he met a guy where, where, where that charisma thing just doesn't work. But there's like, that's one another. Let me ask you this. Um, you know, prior to all this, um, the UK was flooded and controlled by a lot of Russian money. What is the situation now? I mean, London grad, is it still, because they were controlling the financial sector. You know, I had heard stories, you know, being invited to all the right parties. It's like, you know, the Chinese in Washington. I mean, it's, I mean. Well, I mean, funny enough. Um, so um, I'm going to admit quite a bit of ignorance, but that's going to reflect the larger bit. That's something that nobody talks about. So there was this brief phase where everybody was very anti-Russian when the Ukrainian war started and they seized, I think, a villa belonging to, I'm not sure, is it Berezovsky or Abramovich? I mean, Abramovich, and so, but yeah. yes, you are correct. At one point, the they started buying up all the football teams and had all kind of grand mansions and were involved and i mean interesting enough uh, i mean going off on a bit of a tangent probably the worst globalist leader wasn't wasn't so much tony blair but it was really david cameron who opened himself up to the world sort of like asked the chinese to essentially build the nuclear power infrastructure inviting the russians and 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 
I mean, even under the Tories, obviously, migration skyrocketed. So, so there's there's a lot to be said, and that nobody talks about it these days. Where now the Russians are the big boogeyman, but you, you've heard very little. And I mean, quite often, a lot of the Russian oligarchs that fled to London then managed to position themselves in exclusive interviews as being the real dissidents and and such. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it, that's that's probably one of the most under discussed. Uh, issues about the UK. I mean, I do remember even the one bit the couple of years ago where um, the American administration, I think it was even pre-Trump, was warning, don't let your 5G network be done by Huawei. And then they, they went ahead with it anyways. And then last minute, they, they, they then under massive American pressure pivoted. So, so I mean, Britain obviously has, has sort of become what you could call sort of the strip mall of Europe, certainly London has, but I don't know enough about that. But the mere fact that I haven't heard about that in years sort of tells you um, part of the story. Um, do we want to exchange some more thoughts on the um, Putin Tucker thing, or do we want to pivot to the German bit and sort of like perhaps one one thing from um from a historical German perspective? I think one thing that that fascinates me that I've been continually observing is uh, former president Medvedev and then now Putin in this interview historically was very much um, putting Poland in a bad light. Uh, this was really interesting because he, he basically stated that Poland, as far as I understood what he said, that Poland was involved in the, uh, um uh what was it the uh the um, the german occupation of 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 Ch by the way do you do americans now call the czech republic chechia anyways uh, i will still use the term czech republic yeah, nobody says that i heard it on the news here chechia i'm like what come on guy you're just trying to be like kiev kiev yeah <laughs> kiev. <laughs> kiev. <laughs> that's that's almost as good as al sisi of mexico so anyways yeah. Yeah. um uh, he, but that 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 Poland bashing that I've been watching from from Putin and Medvedev is highly interesting, especially it's historical from a, from a German perspective, because he's using the old German names for places like Königsberg, uh, Danzig. He said, you know, it used to be called Danzig, and now it's Gdansk. Um, <laughs> so. Um, Anyways, that I, I that to me is incredibly comical when the because the the Russians and the Poles were very much enemies, and I think what was it? Brzezinski, yeah. Well, yeah, and Brzezinski, what did he say? Well, if I have a choice between the Germans as a Pole between the Germans and the Russians, I was always go for the Germans because I hate the Russians so much. Um, and the, the the other thing is that what we're witnessing in this war, I mean, who's been incredibly vocal against Russia. It's It's been Poland. It's been Polish leaders. That's, that's absolutely true. I think one of, one of the matters with Poland is you, you never really know where this country is headed because we try to uh, compare the po political parties um, with the parties we know, whether it being in the US or in Germany or in Austria. And it just turns out that the Polish political parties are just such a madhouse like you know you get a conservative party and it turns out to do everything that central european conservative parties would not do 
you get a more liberal party um, that somehow is unable to get even the most meager things done. Now it seems like um, they're up for re-election at one point, I think, might maybe early with some um, law reforms. Um, things just, the I don't really understand the Polish political um, larger scheme. Like I do, I do understand that their hatred of Russia is one of their central uh, reasons of being. Um, however, they still hate Germany very much. Um, I, don't, I think not the general population, but um, the, the political parties like uh, both um, Lech Kaczynski and uh, Theodor Kaczynski was the, there was Lech and was the other guy. I mean, oh, his brother? Yeah. Um, uh, Yaroslav? Yeah, Yaroslav Kaczynski. Yeah, yeah. I think the one who, who died in this air crash. Mm -hmm. um, you always had the impression that um, their only political allies were uh, the other uh, Visegrad uh, countries. And then at the same time, you saw that um, they never tried to align with um, Hungary. They never really aligned with, um, Slo with Slovakia. So the Czech Republic being their only kind of partner was kind of odd because the Czech Republic, they don't have bad um, relations with Germany, Austria or something. The only thing that we Austrians really um, were nagging about with them was a nuclear reactor called Temelin um, right on the border. But for Poland, it seems like their whole political, um, like, I don't, I don't want to exaggerate now, but their whole um, political spiel seems to be Germany bad, Russia bad, Ukraine also bad when it comes to grain import, when it comes to all other kinds of things. So Poland really um, had this game of um, having your cake and eating it too for 20 years. Now, um, on I think May 1st or June 1st, it's going to be 20 years since Poland joined the EU and they're still, I think, one of the largest recipients of um, EU subsidies. And Poland just feels like not an ally at all, I think, for many European countries, be it uh, more progressive countries, be it more conservative countries, be it economically liberal countries. Um, Poland always feels like a free rider, I think. Well, you know, I was just there and the impression I got was that they, especially the youth, really want to be like the EU. And, you know, the older generations really don't. And so it's a problem. I mean, they called it a youth quake. I think the younger generation are really not knowledgeable. They're really ignorant of history and what is going on in the world today. That was just my Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, and I'm here to tell you about my new product from MyPillow, towels that actually work. Watch this absorbency test. Here's another towel that we randomly went out and bought. Here's one of my towels with the nice design. I don't know if you can see this, but you could line a swimming pool with this. I mean, this is crazy. Get rid of it. Towels that actually work. What a concept. I'm interrupting this commercial to let you know you can get our six-piece My Towels, regular $69.98, now only $29.98. Or you can save 25% on our brand new kitchen towels made with the same technology as our famous My Towels. Also, we have bath sheets, bath towels, washcloths, hand towels, and so much more. And the best part, with your promo code, your entire order ships absolutely free. So go to MyPillow.com or call the number on your screen. Use that promo code to get deep discounts on all my towels. And for a limited time, your order ships absolutely free. There was one super interesting thing about the interview for me. I mean, he... Uh, 
So people expected he was going to speak to the American public. And in a two degree, he has done it, but he went about it in a bit of an autistic way, going off of these four, 30, 40 minute historical tangents. The one public that he actually spoke to concisely enough, and that point wasn't lost. And I think that's what both Fabian and Lucas were referring to, where it's like, well, Poland. Um, so they're not, there's still one gas pipeline that works, but they've shut it down and the Ukrainians have. And by the way, aren't you guys giving them a lot of money? And he mentioned the German political establishment as incompetent and, uh, and, and mentioned like, look, obviously Nord Stream 1 has been destroyed, Nord Stream 2 damaged, but there's still one pipe that actually works. We'd be happily giving you gas. I mean, look, I mean, I'm not trying to do that whole thing that I always criticize a part of the German right. Oh, so he's the good guy. He's he's wanting to help us. I'm like, no, 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 no. That that guy is a Russian imperialist. That, that's and and a, and a master level troll. See, yesterday has shown on so many levels with Tucker. But there there, there were some some good points, and there and interesting that he talked to the German public, not you know like through Tucker, as it were, not to the American public. <laughs> um, but but yeah, so so that was one one interesting bit. I find. Let's move on to Germany. What do you think? Yeah, so Germany and probably Lucas, do you want to kick us off? So we essentially we have our foreign minister suddenly. Uh, oh no, minister of finance. Yep, yeah, yeah, okay. After we we shifted the the, the conversation to neo Nazis for the last couple of weeks. Yeah, we've got a problem. We are not competitive enough. Over to you. Yeah, well, so Germany, Germany has done. Uh, Germany seems to be over. According to uh, Bloomberg, the economics um, news, the days of the German economy are counted. And what did they say in the German version? Um, the German days as an industrial superpower counted because the energy crisis allegedly uh, killed so many, um, so many factories and stuff. So Germany seems to be on the brink of an everlasting um, small-scale um, economic depression. Um, there's like there's no investments being made into factories anymore. Factories move out of the country. You can tell that so many things that uh, politicians have promised to this country just fail to materialize. Like you can tell that the infrastructure is not um, getting improved at all, whether it be um, rail traffic, which is really important for cargo, whether it's um, normal roads, whether it's air traffic. Um, you can feel like Germany seems to be in this situation where the whole country is trying or is being turned into like a, what, what do you call these things? Um, living museum, like in, in German, we call that Freilichtmuseum, you know, where you can, where you can tour the Amish places and stuff. Can I inject something real quick? Yeah, sure. Do you realize how stunning that is? I mean, we're just kind of glossing by it. I mean, not us, but the world. Yeah. Th that is stunning stunningly effective result of a carefully coordinated attack against the West to destroy the major industrial power in Europe in a few short years. Yeah. And, the, and there was in there one more thing. There was a yeah. article that came out in the US that said, if you're this stupid, you don't deserve to survive. And they were talking about the US. Yeah. Well, that throw that right at Germany. If they're that stupid to allow their economy to be destroyed, then they don't yeah. deserve to, to survive. Well, there, there's a reason why they say never bet against the Americans. And it seems like Germany once more um, tried, we covered this in last week's episode, Germany tried to trust the Biden administration in helping yeah. them with their energy needs. And now you see what's happening. Now, the, the weird thing is just that um, Germany could, like, 
I don't want to blame the American for anything here because um, the German politicians, uh, they would be free to just um, lift this nuclear power ban. They would be free to just, um, how do you say, to restart um, these four nuclear power reactors or power plants with like, I think, a total of 10 or 11 reactors um, that we have in amongst others in Bavaria, where you can be sure that they are really well maintained, that the Bavarian state government made sure that these would be ready for like usage within like two or three days. But you can simply say that um, German politics, German government is not willing um, to make that happen because for in their opinion, um, the high power prices um, have positive effects. People consume less, uh, people spend less in general, um, people use their electric, um, how do you say, electric devices less, people travel less due to the fact that um, like fuel is just more expensive. The taxation on fuel is increasing. Like uh, we have this so-called, um, there's like a CO2 levy that's being imposed on like every gallon of fuel which is being increased year by year uh, you have a road usage taxes like like easy pass just way more um way more expensive um which since november also covers small scale freight providers like um up, i think up until november only um trucks with seven and a half metric tons and more had to pay for this now it's like three and a half tons or so so you can say this like last week we we're talking about this um multi-prong um attack on the german economy but basically it's like they're coming for us from the outside but also from the inside and what what makes this whole thing so ashamingly um easy to see is that the German government does not do anything against this attack from the inside. No, they're basically letting it happen. They don't do anything against it. One more example, the so-called um, Klimakleber, the, the, you know, these, the last generation, um, they, they used to stick themselves or glue themselves to the roads. Now they say this is no longer useful. Instead, they want to, um, they want to hit, um, places where there's like fossil fuel consumption happening aka they're gonna they're gonna hit airports they're gonna sabotage pipelines they're gonna sabotage um, refineries and the German government's like yeah you can just do this you know um no we're not we're not gonna put you into detention or we're not gonna put you into prison after um you've had the chance to be in in an ordinary court no it's just um you do you and this whole country's going down the brink well, you know, they're trying to, this is degrowth communism. I mean, yeah, it this, absolutely this is yeah. degrowth communism. Yeah. It's a planned strategy. It's very obvious. Yeah. You have to be a, a willful uh, member of a death cult to not believe that. Yeah. And so they're doing it here too. Yeah, I mean, the only question, I mean, and, and then and Biden and yes. the German leaders are working for someone else. Yeah, but I'd, li I'd like to put one one thing out here, and this is um, no matter um, how how tough the effects might be in the American economy, you can be sure that the Americans, both the companies and the individual people, will suffer less. There's going to be less of a detrimental uh, development for the Americans than for the Germans. Uh, the, the standard of living is roughly the same. I'd even say that the average standard of living in Germany is a bit higher um, than the average US, thanks to all the things uh, that Germans have just had more time to develop than the Americans. I mean, 
everything west of the Mississippi River hasn't been there like 200 years ago. While in Germany, um, the only thing we had to do was unify under one flag, basically. So what's happening in the U.S. is um, some th some parts of your, um, how do you say, some, some parts of your uh, relative wealth are being taken away or replaced. But in Germany, way more is happening. Um, if you're a farmer, you're not longer allowed um, to use a certain part of your agricultural area. Um, you're no longer allowed to use um, certain fertilizers or uh, pesticides, which you're allowed to use in the U.S. You're not allowed to export things to certain countries, such as Russia. You're um, being endangered by Ukrainian imports, which in the U.S. you're not. And this is just for the primary sector. Secondary sector, the Americans are basically killing it with their Inflation Reduction Act, um, triggering German industries to scale down, to, to basically replace their whole factories, um, taking them down in Germany, taking them to the U.S. This is the same thing that happened back in the 1945 following years when the Soviets uh, dismantled the Eastern German industry and put it all back into Siberia and stuff. The only difference is now people are doing this um, deliberately because the American subsidies are just triggering them to go there while the Russians did have to use a weapon for this. So is the AFD going to survive? <laughs> the question is whether the AFD is the solution to, the, to all the problems at hand. And I think AFD just has no... AFD has no solution except for the migration um, thing. And I would even say that they are... In German, we'd say um, they're being hit on the wrong foot. Um, I don't think that they were ever supposed to find solutions for these things. The AFD having been a single issue party in the beginning, like, you know, this anti-Euro, mm -hmm. um, what do you say, this anti-Eurobond party. Then this whole thing was over and there was the anti-refugee party, which it still is. Um, the bad thing, and correct me if I'm wrong, Fabian Christian, AFD has no plans for like um, for like um, how do you say industrial growth or something. Right. Um, they they want to scale back subsidies for farmers, but at the same time um, they like they cheer when the farmers go on the road to uh, to claim for those subsidies. But an AFD led government in Germany would probably also not solve any problems we're having right now. To be honest. Well, and I remember hearing a quote saying what's right wing in Europe is in America, probably Marxist Leninism, communism. <laughs> I mean, um, it's, yeah, I think you have to realize that the economic policy of the AFD is, is very um, collectively driven. Um, it's mm. I mean, this is what so their their policy basically is saying we're going to throw out all the migrants including the, I don't know, the cook from Vietnam and 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 the nanny from Bangladesh, um, which means we're going to have economic uh, losses, heavy losses uh, in that migrating sector. But that doesn't matter because now all the foreigners are gone. I mean, I mean, that's that's a very that's a very um, blunt way of, of, of putting some of the thoughts that have been put out by in, including Maximilian Kra, who's the um, the um, uh, European uh, can the candidate for the European election. Yeah, the, 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 the Chinese party guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyways, I, I um, the, the questions um, or, or, or the big uh, shift in, in Germany, will not come after the European elections. Uh, it will definitely be 
on the um, state elections in the East, um, in Thuringia, Saxony, and Brandenburg. Uh, that is in, what, September and October? I think and, so. And those elections are going to cause an international rift because the IFT has a chance of winning in some of these states. So um, that will determine a lot, and and that will that could even stumble the federal government. It could stumble into different type of scenarios that we still cannot make out. But what is clear is that the uh, atmosphere in Germany is very depressed economically. You're reading of layoffs, massive layoffs by big companies on a daily basis, and you're seeing that people are taking it to the streets, left and right. Everybody is unhappy. Um, and the government tries to pour money into everything, but it just it doesn't work because, as Margaret Thatcher once said, communism, socialism only works until you run out of other people's money. And that's what the uh, traffic light coalition in Germany has been pretty much showing to um, the uh, to, to I mean, they're basically giving you the playbook version of how not to run a country. So that's my word for today. Probably to, to wrap up something. So, I mean, what I find the, um, I mean, so I used to criticize over the last couple of years that the, the basic subjective atmosphere in Germany was actually better. Everybody, so usually Germans were always more pessimistic than the situation mandated. And over the last couple of years, everything was good and these migrants are a great chance. And I'm like, come on, most of them are semi-literate even in their own language. So and they're like, no, great chance. So for a long time, the basic um, atmosphere in Germany was way more optimistic up until the Ukraine conflict than it was merited. Now, I do think, interesting enough, empirically speaking, yes, um, you do see the writings on the wall where the industry is going. It's not going to happen overnight. What mitigates a lot of that? Yes, there are massive layoffs, but what mitigates a lot of it is the massive boomer retirement. So a lot of friends of mine still find it quite easy to get jobs, way easier than I found it myself when I returned from having studied in the United States, like, I don't know, 15 years ago. So where it's like, well, um, well, they were always very specific. Well, yeah, see, for this job in a technical company, we want an engineer, even if you mainly do sales or whatever. They were boom. And that, that was the end of the story. And now they've become way more flexible with all the massive boomer retirement. So that kind of helps us right now. It won't, that effect won't last forever. Um, but um, what, what, I mean, the one thing, once we got to see with, the situation isn't great right now, but it isn't terrible just yet. But even with, with the situation got slightly bad, the AFD essentially doubled over a couple of months. And sort of your question was like, well, you know, obviously the government managed to skim 45% of the AFD by, by reframing the discussion. Like when the situation gets really bad, I mean, then then you see something like the AFD skyrocketing, and you also see that that uh, anti-migrant leftist party from Sarah Wagenknecht uh, soaring. That's a prediction I'm willing to make, but and that's unusual in this podcast. I'm also going to be the optimist here if we make adjustments. Right now, the German industry is far more resilient than a lot of people think because it is still family owned to a large degree. You've got plenty of mid-sized companies. You've got a lot of companies that are not um, part of big conglomerate structures. 
And many of them are still wedded to the soil and the communities where they are. They can only do so much. So there is still a very short window of time where the German industry is much more resilient than I think a lot of people, including Bloomberg, are predicting. But yeah, that that window is closing um, ever faster. But yes, so it's still my slight optimist take. And maybe sort of some final remarks from Fabian and Lucas to that, and then we probably wrap up. Good. All right, guys, your final take, and then we're going to yeah, wrap um, things up. I do have to agree with Todd um, largely. However, like... I don't really think that the U.S. is up for such a bad awakening that, like the like the Germans are. Um, it's easy to criticize President Biden, of course, um, and I do think that the last week's been a really, really bad week for him. With uh, was like um, meeting President Cole, and I, I think was was probably uh, was suddenly a German politician stuff. So. This is all really fun, but in the end, what matters to the people um, are the employment numbers. And the fact is, um, like we've all known these these jokes, like yeah, Bidenomics work now that I have three jobs, <laughs> so it's just being created. But um, let's let's keep it real here. Uh, the the real economic situation for many Americans um, has improved over the last one or two years, I think. Um, more jobs have been created than have um, been slashed. And in Germany, it's not it's not happening. Um, I only see tax increases in Germany. Um, I saw certain good things that the Republican Party did in the US um, where they tried to where they tried to stop the influence of certain um, Democrat Party uh, movements in either the Senate um, or the House of Representatives. Um, I think there was this idea of, um, you know, like upping the maximum tax bracket for certain people while at the same time making sure that people with like, I don't know, $600 per year side income are being um, audited more intensively. Like these are these are secondary topics, if at all, um, I think it did not happen due to the fact that Republicans um, kept being against it. Um, the whole Ukraine thing, and this is this is one, of the, one of the main drivers of German public debt right now. Um, another example, um, Chancellor Schulz goes to the US and what does he say to President Biden? You, the two of you know it, right? Refresh my memory. Oh, uh, he, he was asking, he was asking, um, he, he was pushing Biden uh, to give money because we can't afford that alone. Well, what can't we afford alone? Why are we affording it anyway? You know, it's like, yes, we can't afford it, just like Margaret Thatcher said. Um, at one point, you're going to run out of other people's money. And the, however, at this point, you get the German, um, like somewhat conservative, like the um, the Süddeutsche Zeitung, Southern German newspaper, reading Intelligentsia, you know, all the small town people who have nice jobs and stuff, who, are, who keep on running this country just as well as people on factory floors, one has to admit, because they're doing administrative stuff, etc. And they're like, yeah, maybe so many people are just against Ukraine because they feel like they have too little to live on. And I'm like, yes. Like, first of all, yes, there is just way too little, but this is nothing to do with Ukraine. This is something to do with the maximum taxation brackets in Germany. This has to do with the fact that you're slipping into this tax bracket of 42% income tax 
even more and more easily year after year. Um, this is something to do with the fact that this whole country um, is turning into a money redistribution machine. Um, American listeners, American viewers, imagine your government taking so much money from you, but also giving you a lot of services, which you're just never going to use because the German government's like, oh, yeah, um, you can, um, we're going to take um, more federal funds uh, to subsidize the public transport network so you can buy a ticket for just 49 euros a month. You can go through the whole country. Well, nobody wants to do this because those people who go through the country um, in regional trains, they have no job. They have nothing to do. Nobody takes their kids from southern Bavaria up to northern um, to the northern part of Schleswig-Holstein, um, taking like 12 hours. Um, people who do this are people who might just as well um, save on this amount. And yes, there might be fam there might be families whose only way of getting to the seaside this is. However, there are these families could be helped way differently, way better. And I think the German government is just, um, it's like an addict. It's an addict for money. Um, and now, now that they have the money, they don't know where to spend it. And I think my last words um, for today before we might just um, talk about some comments from last week are um, Americans are way better off, um, even with President Biden, than Germany is under um, Chancellor Schultz. And I think that we will not see um, a change in government in 2025 after next Bundestag elections. Well, um, and, 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 you know, that's a that's a very gloomy uh, statement to make. I mean, that's a, that's setting the bar very low. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, of course. The, like, I, I the mean, art's low, and still, um, Olaf Scholz does it way worse. Worse, right? Time. Right. No, I mean, and and they they have they have easily shown that they um, are not willing to lead in a strategic way. Mm -hmm. And I still want to figure out, you know, who's who's behind the policies that are. Uh, driving the Biden administration, who's behind the ideas of the Inflation Reduction Act. It's always so interesting that um, the perspective in the U.S. is so different than it is in Germany, where people in Germany are saying this is this this legislation is killing our industry here because um, so many large corporations from Germany are just outsourcing to the United States. Uh, so the United States um, has played... Uh, their economic hand very smartly, whereas Germany has done a terrible job. But still, I remember only a few years ago um, listening to an economics professor who said Merkel's economics policies were very protectionist, but on her um, presenting of that whole policy, it seemed to be very, oh, I don't know, balanced and liberal and open, but Germany was very protectionist. Um, they... Um, and now you're seeing uh, with America a very protectionist economic policy. But um, on, a, on a grand scale, as you said, Biden economics doesn't work unless you have three jobs.